Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Lynn McTaggart back with us, award-winning author of a number of books, including the worldwide bestsellers, The Field, The Intention Experiment, The Power of Eight. She is also the co-founder of the International Health Magazine, What Doctors Don't Tell You, and the Health Expo Get Well, which is the architect of The Intention Experiments, which is a web-based global laboratory to test the power of intention to heal the world. And Lynn, welcome back, and I hope you are well. Hey, George. I'm absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Great to be back. Where are you these days? Well, in the UK, um, mostly doing stuff online, of course, with all of the issues with COVID. But but I've been traveling a little bit, but uh, doing a lot of intention experiments. Oh, you're doing many, and I just remember many of them we've talked about. But first of all, talk about the definition, Lynn, if you would, of intention for people. Okay, well, most people think of intention as a power thought, George. You know, um, I have my power thought in the morning when I meditate. I send it out, and that's the only thing the universe hears. But the science shows us that our thoughts aren't locked inside our head. There, you know, you're a leaky bucket. You are sending out 24-7. So all of the thoughts you think actually can get transmitted out into the world and affect people and things. And we see that because, I mean, there's, as I say, a lot of brain science demonstrating that, you know, they can't find memory inside the brain. And There's a lot of evidence suggesting that our brain is much more like a transducer, you know, an antenna receiver, rather than the repository of our thoughts. So we're beaming out, just like a a television station and a television set all at the same time. There's no question about that. And we're almost like radio transmitters, too, aren't we? Well, that's right. And... The problem is we're not very conscious of what we're sending out. So, you know, all of your negative thinking, all of your judgments about yourself and everyone else, all that flotsam and jetsam that runs through your head all the time, that's being beamed out too, and that essentially becomes your life's intention. So my work's all about helping people harness what is, you know, consistent and positive thinking and effects. Is one person, Lynn, as effective as a million people with intention? No, a group is more effective. Okay. That I've definitely demonstrated more and more and more. In, and it doesn't have to be a million, George. It can be eight. Um, what I've been doing is experimenting with both large groups of thousands of people with the intention experiments, but also groups of eight just putting people in small groups and having them send intention to some member of the group or something outside. And I've found that size of group doesn't matter. What matters is just having a group. And those groups can be extraordinarily powerful. You know, I gave a, this is an online talk to an audience in Sedona um, a month or so ago. And They sent intention in groups at the end of the thing. So I'm just explaining what to do on, you know, on Zoom. And a woman is in one of the groups, and I've got her on video. She has MS, and she got up out of her wheelchair and pushed it away. Oh, my gosh. So 
These groups can be really, really powerful, but the key element here, George, is a group of any size. How does it work? (laughs) $64,000. It sure is. Um, Well, I think, first of all, we have to get into a little bit of quantum physics and understand that at our most, you know, fundamental level, we are vibrating packets of energy. You know, everything is energy, even, you know, even some of the more staid scientific papers and magazines now admit this. So we're all vibrating packets of energy, and that energy can easily be shifted and changed. And what we found is that thoughts are a powerful shifter. I mean, even the quantum physicists back 100 years ago recognized that a subatomic particle isn't an actual something. It's all of its possible states all at the same time until observed or measured. And so what we're talking about is life, us, the world, is in a state of possibility. And that certain things like observation help to shift it into a certain state. Now, this is a very simplistic way of explaining it all, but basically we're co-creators of our world. And we see that not only with things, we see that with time, we see that with things over space, that we have consciousness is a powerful creator. And that's what we're trying to harness. Tell us some of the intention experiments you're working on now, Lynn. Well, just to demonstrate how powerful consciousness is, over the last year and even further, we've been playing around with space and how far we can take it. How far do we have an effect? So over the last year, I ran a number of experiments um, just tied around incidents that were happening in the year. So we did one when the George Floyd... Um, murder happened um, to try to calm some of the riots. We did one when Beirut had, you know, had that terrible explosion. We did one uh, with the 17th of January. Um, I think we did it right before the inauguration to try to calm Washington. And we did one recently when the Arabs and Israelis uh, that all kicked off again. The Palestinians and the and the Israelis and as well a Healing America experiment. Now, all the time we did that, we also were measuring our effect on equipment sitting in St. Petersburg, Russia. I was working with Dr. Konstantin Korotkov, a famous Russian physicist, who's developed equipment that is very sensitive to measure atmospheric effects. And we just wanted to see what was, you know, how far does consciousness stretch? So these, this equipment um, measures the effect of the atmosphere in the room, the charge in the room. So it's sitting there in Russia. I've got people all over the world in each of these experiments sending intention to the target, but also looking at a picture of that equipment set up in Russia. And afterward, every single time, we had an extraordinary effect on that equipment. So what that really says is that consciousness, you know, 
tra- can travel over thousands of miles. It's not local. It's non-local. Right. And distance and, means nothing with it, I don't think. Sorry? Distance means nothing with that. Distance means, means nothing. And notice also we had a group effect, even though we're all scattered around the world, all sending intention from our Internet. So one of the things that we're looking at is just the, the power of our consciousness, no matter where we're placed, to affect objects and, and affect things in the world. And, of course, we're also, you know, we're planning to do intentions where we can actually measure, once again, you know, the outcome of our target. So these experiments, it wasn't possible to actually measure, you know, did we have an effect on lowering violence? Um, But we've had huge effects, and we've been able to measure them on the participants themselves. Um, We had one-third of the people on that last Arab-Israeli experiment. I survey people right after all these experiments. One-third had physical improvements. One person didn't need to use their asthma inhaler. Somebody else had no pain after surgery, that kind of thing. And we find extraordinary effects on the people themselves. Um, 30% of that last experiment felt more tolerant toward other people, Um, people not like them. So the extraordinary thing about doing an intention experiment for something like the George Floyd incident is that it changes the participants, and they go out in the world, and it changes the people they're in contact with. So it has this extraordinary ripple effect. Could you do a COVID-19 experiment with intention and try to get rid of it? (laughs) Well, we've done a lot of COVID-19 informal intention experiments. I was running them every week for about a year, and they were mainly to get rid of fear. I think, and we've also tried to lower it in certain areas. I think you you have to, one thing our intention experiments have demonstrated is it's hard to do a great big experiment to say, let's do an experiment for world peace, you know, and getting rid of COVID in the world is a bit like that. It's a bit big for consciousness to zero in on. Think of consciousness a bit like a laser. So you need a a specific place to focus on. But we can try, and we have tried lowering it in certain areas. And it's it's had some interesting effects. Um, I haven't worked with a scientist on that to actually measure it. And as you know, what we try to do with intention experiments the ones where we're really focusing on something like we did when we were lowering violence in St. Louis is we actually look at the police data before and afterward. And I work with uh, a scientist, like I worked with a professor of statistics at the University of California to look at that. So we can do that. But, I mean, one of the things that we're, we want to work on is we're doing an intention experiment um, on the 20th anniversary of 9/11, um, we want to try to. Now you did one for the you, you did one for the 10th anniversary, didn't you? We did one for the 10th anniversary, and it was amazing, George, because I had on not only Westerners and particularly Americans, but also Arabs. 
So I worked with a guy I've who's hosted me in the Middle East numerous times. His name is Dr. Salah al-Rashid, and he's like the Deepak of the Middle East, Deepak Chopra of the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, okay. And he's got, a, he's got a big following, and he's very much involved in personal development. So he got his audience, I got my audience, and together we did this intention to lower violence in the two most violent provinces in southern Afghanistan. Um, and this was the stronghold of the Taliban. So we did the intention experiment afterward, and you know, it's tough to get data out when there's a war. But we managed to get some data from the combined NATO forces, and they demonstrated afterward that the lowering of violence in just those two provinces was the lowest it had been for years and lower than anywhere else in the country. And this had been the most violent area. So it looked like we had an effect, but the more interesting thing, as far as I'm concerned, was what was happening between the Americans and the Arabs. They were sending, they were emailing each other or texting each other or Facebooking each other on my Facebook page and on instant messaging. Huh. They were becoming other. friends, huh? They were becoming friends and they were forgiving each other. And so that's what's really interesting me a lot is not only the effect on the target, George, but the effect on the participants and how it opens up their hearts and makes them more loving. So that was the, that's the plan again. For uh, September 11th, we're going to do another intention experiment um, again for Af Afghanistan, and again we're going to have Arabs and Westerners and Americans together, all intending for healing Afghanistan. And I think it's what I'm also going to do is see what happens to the participants, because as I say, mm -hmm. it seems to be participating in these big group altruistic intentions not only changes the target but changes the participants. So. It's there, and I think we've got it up on your website if people want to join. Intention experiments are always free. They're just free events where people can get together and, and do something for peace. Lynn, you were talking about earlier how the human body is like a transmitter and uh, how it sends out these waves. How important is the brain in its function with this? Or is it outside of the brain? When you're talking about intention, just intention generally. Yes. Well, let's get one thing really clear, which is brain does not equal mind. Um, as I say, studies that have been done about the brain demonstrate, and lots of those, lots of those cases of near-death experiences, of coma victims, demonstrate that consciousness is still there when the brain isn't functioning. In fact, when the brain is registering dead, flatlining, the consciousness is still there. So I think what we have to understand is the brain is a kind of, you know, it's a mechanism for consciousness. It is not consciousness. Now, if someone has a tumor, let's say, in their brain... Does that affect mm -hmm. any of this, their ability to well, intent? It can affect, you know, the, the mechanisms of things. 
Uh, it certainly can affect certain mechanical things, but in terms of of sheer consciousness, um, it may ha- affect their ability to, you know, to speak or to perceive certain things. But the actual consciousness itself seems to lay outside that. And as I say, I think one of the biggest demonstrations of that is when people are are dead or unconscious. And when they come back, and there are many, many, many instances of this, they have total recall of everything that happened in the room while they were dead or while they were, uh, you know, while they were in a coma. So I think all of that suggests that consciousness is somewhere outside and that we, we, it beams in through us. It isn't coming from our brains. What was it initially, Lynn, years gone back, that got you interested in this field? Well, it was really an accident, George. I, um, I, I'm editor of a magazine called What Doctors Don't Tell You, and we've been editing this in, as a publication for about 30 years. And in the 90s, I started getting very interested in studies demonstrating things like spiritual healing. You know, these were good scientific studies because we look at the science, you know, with this publication, with what docs, uh, and we look at what works and what doesn't work in conventional and alternative medicine. So I'm looking through scientific studies, and I'm seeing more and more studies of spiritual healing. And I'm wondering to myself, well, if you can take a thought and send it to someone else and make them better, well, that completely undermines everything we think about how the world works. So I decided to try to find out why that could be. And I thought this was going to be an easy task. You know, I'll just find a couple of scientists and they'll explain all of this to me and I'll write it up and that'll be it. But I was shocked when I started researching and talking to frontier physicists and scientists who'd been working in this area for years in the area of consciousness research. And I discovered that each of them had a little piece of a new puzzle that compounded into a completely new view of the world, a new view of reality. They were in the midst of creating a, a new science. It was unfolding right in front of my eyes. So, the big problem with scientists is that they talk in math. And so it was my <laughs> job not only to decode their math, but also to try to put it all together. And that became my book, The Field. So that got me interested in the whole idea of thoughts being an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.